Welcome to the conversation at airsafe.com. I'm your host, Todd Curtis. On April 2nd, 2015, I was a guest on the Goldhawk Fights Back show, hosted by Dale Goldhawk of radio station CFCM in Toronto, Canada, also known as Zuma Radio. We discussed two recent events, the crash of the German Wings A320 in France and the crash of an A320 in Halifax, Nova Scotia. Now, let's continue with Goldhawk Fights Back with Dale Goldhawk on AM740. Well, here's some of the latest news on Andreas Lubitz, the um, German uh, co-pilot uh, from uh, German Wings who uh, flew uh, an Airbus into the uh, uh, Alps uh, a number of days ago, killing everyone on board. The investigators at the scene have found the black box for data, so there may be more information there to be shared. A lot of information is coming out through the uh, the prosecutor's office. We're hearing more about this accident early on than we are with many of these uh, uh, situations, these air disasters. Also, uh, information that on Andreas Lubitz's uh, iPad, they have discovered that he had been searching for information on aircraft cockpit doors and on committing suicide, a number of uh, um, plaguing uh, questions uh, and a number of uh, 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 alarming issues about Andreas Lubitz's past life. We have on the line to talk about some of these issues Todd Curtis. He's a pilot, an aviation expert, and, uh, and, and an author. Todd Curtis, welcome to Zoomer Radio. Well, thanks for having me on today. There's an awful lot of information coming out in a relatively short period of time about this uh, German air disaster, isn't there? Indeed there is, and given the nature of this particular event and the fact that it is apparently not an accident but a deliberate event, I think the amount of information and the variety of information will be far greater than what you usually see in an investigation. There is that public pressure to get that information out, isn't there? Certainly there's a public pressure to get the information out in any investigation, and especially so when there's a potentially a criminal element involved. But the investigative process, and I know know it from the civil aviation side, is by its nature and its design a very deliberate and slow process. And releasing information to the public usually happens after that information has been vetted and analyzed to some extent. And some of the information that's coming out is not following those procedures. Well, no, this is, this is raw information that's just put out as soon as they get their hands on it, it, seem, it seems anyway, doesn't it? Well, some of it seems to be uh, leaks that are not from the official investigative body. So, uh, again, with all the, the various bodies involved and the various people involved, it doesn't surprise me. The, uh, the question I think that a lot of people are asking, uh, maybe more so those who fly a lot, is, why was this man um, uh, allowed to continue to uh, sit uh, in the cockpit of, uh, of these aircraft when you look at some of his uh, medical history and his bouts of what's being referred to now as severe depression? Do you, do you share that view? I share that view, but with the following re restriction, in that it's unclear at this point how much of the information should have been released to his employer and at, at what time and how much he was liberally hiding. Because as it turns out, and I can speak mostly from the U.S. perspective, having reviewed recently some of the FAA documentation as to what is allowed and what is not allowed as far as medical conditions, one can have various kinds of current or past medical conditions and still be granted the right to have a, a flying license. 
And as far as being on an airline's uh, crew, again, they're the rules that are in effect for the regulating authority and the rules that are in effect for the airline. So my question is, given the context of where he was flying in Germany for German Wings Airlines, was he in tune with the regulations that were in existence right that, at that point? And secondly, yeah. was the airline doing the prudent thing when it comes to screening their pilots? Well, at the end of all of this and when the official results of the investigation are, are, are out as well, we may well find some new regulations regarding these things, do you suppose? I suspect that new regulations will be, uh, it, it's almost certain there will be some regulations. What isn't certain is where those regulations will be applied because, among other things, uh, one has to realize that aviation is an inherently international, worldwide endeavor, and any change that happens in order to be effective, in order to reduce risk, has to really be applied across the board. And that may take a several years long process of first understanding what the risks are and second coming up with a plan and executing a plan to reduce or eliminate those risks. Well, but it's it's a difficult thing to accomplish, isn't it? I mean, how can you be absolutely and totally protected and prepared for any eventuality? It is not every day that a pilot intentionally flies a passenger aircraft into the side of a mountain. I know, and in fact, although it, this is not the first time it's happened, it is still a rare event. But in my own research, I've seen uh, seven successful attempts where either the pilot was proven to have flown it deliberately or highly suspected to have flown an airplane deliberately into the ground or into the water. And one event in the U.S. that was very, very nearly successful. So as a risk assessment person, as an aviation uh, safety engineer for quite some time, if I look at some issue that has over the course of 30 years led to the loss of seven aircraft and nearly the loss of, a, of an eighth aircraft, that's a serious issue that should be addressed. And there are many risks out there that have taken out far fewer aircraft in that same period of time that have had a substantial amount of energy and time devoted to preventing that risk. So clearly, this is something that should be addressed. It's just a question of how. Do you, do you think that the reinforced cockpit and lockable cockpit door uh, uh, has done more to enhance air safety than to hamper it as, it, as it seems to have done in this particular case? With any system or any set of procedures that are put in place to reduce risk, in this case to reduce the threat of an airplane being commandeered, there are pros and cons to every system. There are pros and cons to every procedure. As you protect against one risk, you have to have some compromises. For example, putting those cockpit doors in aircraft increases the weight of the aircraft, which uh, will change how the aircraft is balanced and, and other technical things like that. But more importantly, if you have a procedure whereby to protect the cockpit, you're giving the pilots the ability to completely lock that cockpit up, then you open up the risk of, well, what if the pilots were incapacitated for some reason, or what if they had a, uh, an intent to do harm rather than good? In either of those two cases, that door could essentially uh, doom the aircraft to the fate uh, that the pilots wanted to have. And that seems to be the case in, in, the, in the German Wings event. The, um, this tragedy, and uh, we have our own homegrown example here in Canada with the um, crash landing of the Airbus um, um, on, um, in, at uh, Halifax uh, Airport, 
uh, seems to, I think, in many cases, enhance the whole notion of fear of flying. Um, what is the worldwide effect of those kinds of uh, situations when, when we all hear about these things? What kind of a damper does it put on flying by air? Well, from an from a overall perspective, it puts very little damper in the actual amount of people flying because uh, in most cases, and myself included, if I'm already uh, purchasing a ticket to fly on an aircraft in the next few days and something terrible happens, I'm still going to go through with that trip. I, although I might be a bit queasy about it because unless I have a real sense that my flight is at risk, I have no logical reason not to do so. But in general, it may not change people's behavior, but it will certainly change how they feel about what they're doing. And having two events like this within a week of each other would heighten the sensibility anyone has about what's their vulnerability when they're in the sky. Now, as a personal aside, I first heard about the news flash that the co-pilot might have flown the airplane into the ground while I myself was flying on an A320, sitting in row three right behind the cockpit door. So I spent about the next hour, you know, checking the news flashes and looking at the door thinking, how can I get around this thing? I couldn't figure out a way. It's pretty foolproof, isn't it? That's uh, by design. I'm thinking, okay, are there weaknesses in the design that were not taken into account? And that was running through my head the things that I knew from... Uh, my experience, and you know, a lot of sensible things were put into play. And given the kinds of tools or options you have in flight, could you get around that door in 10 minutes? No. Yeah. No. And so there you are sitting uh, <laughs> sitting uh, uh, in the aircraft looking at that door and thinking that. Did it make you a little trepidatious just a bit? Well, having been in the, the part of the business where I've been looking acutely at incidents and accidents for, for years. Uh, it didn't affect me emotionally as much, but it did uh, make me start going into work mode instead of sitting back and enjoying the TV show I was trying to watch. Yeah. And uh, again, people deal with stress differently. Myself, being inside of the business, I deal with it by engaging my mind with trying to resolve the problem. Uh, the average passenger, who may not want to think about this sort of thing, because after all, their intent is just to get on a plane and get somewhere, uh, this could uh, lead to all sorts of consternation. For some, it could give them periods of anxiousness, a panic attack, etc. Yeah. Although it's a small percentage of people who might get that response, it's still something that you don't want to have happen to you if you know you're prone to it. Well, passengers can at least console themselves, can they not, uh, with the idea that the odds are on their side? Uh, again... One can console yourself oneself with that, and having been on the engineering and mathematical analysis side of this, I could talk about probability and odds until the cows come home. And in fact, from a numerical point of view, risk has decreased smoothly over the last several decades to the point where the, la the chance of something happening is so much less than it was 20 or 30 years ago. And without going into great detail, if the rate of crashes, for whatever reason, in the 1970s existed today, there would be more than one serious event per week somewhere around the world instead of one every few months. And although you could make the argument, well, the numbers are as good or maybe a little bit better than the 1970s, the perception of risk is driven largely by how frequently they occur in our lives. And in the modern era, where you have Twitter and YouTube and everyone carrying a camera around, Something happens. It's instantly known around the world, even when you're flying in an airplane. Oh, by the way, on the way back from my trip, 
I was in another A320 when I got news of the Air Canada crash. No. I'm thinking, I should stop traveling so much. (laughs) Maybe it's me that's causing this. Again, it wasn't logical, but believe it or not, that's a thought that came through my mind. Just before I give out the numbers and let people get involved here, I've been calling this incident in Halifax, and I've flown on an awful lot of A320s as well. Uh, I call that incident in Halifax uh, a crash landing. That's just me as a mere mortal speaking, although Air Canada officials here were absolutely insistent it was called a hard landing, even though one wing came off, it lost an engine, the uh, the uh, the landing gear were ripped off. Uh, it sounds to me more like a crash landing than a hard landing, but I guess... I guess in uh, uh, aviation lore, that's what it is. Is that right? Well, let me let me uh, channel uh, President Bill Clinton for a minute. It depends on what your definition of crash is. And in my definition, I use what I call the duck test. We've probably heard this joke before. It looks like a duck, walks like a duck, swims like a duck, and goes quack. It's very likely a duck. And if you lose your landing gear, both engines, and your bottom of your fuselage is ripped up, wings are ripped up, stabilizer has things torn out of it, and you have pieces of antenna stuck in your uh, forward um, bulkhead, and oh, by the way, there's a fuel leak going on, Yeah, it's a crash. I would think so. In fact, I had a pilot tell me once that, uh, that a landing was nothing more than a controlled crash anyway. Well, that's, uh, let's just say it's a uh, finely balanced, controlled uh, management of energy. And if you control it well, you land on the wheels, everybody gets out okay. That, that sounds somewhat more com- uh, comforting. Here are the numbers if uh, you'd like to join in our conversation if you have a question for Todd Curtis. 416-360-0740 or 866-740-4740. Goldhawk fights back on Zoomer Radio. Here is Dale Goldhawk. Talking to Todd Curtis, a pilot, uh, an aviation expert, and an author about the two airplane uh, incidents in our recent uh, past. Um, Todd Curtis, you were talking about um, safety records improving over the years, and I think we all know that. How safe uh, is it possible for air travel to get someday? What are your thoughts on that? Well, there's always room for improvement. There's always ways to uh, do one of two things either prevent certain things from happening altogether, reduce the likelihood of those things happening, or to reduce the impact should the unfortunate uh, thing happen to that aircraft. And let's look at Halifax for a moment. Uh, The aircraft as designed, the A320, was the culmination of decades of research and experience with other aircraft. So a variety of things about that airplane would have been much different from an airplane in the 1960s, including having materials in the cabin that would be less likely to give off noxious fumes, having uh, emergency escape procedures and evacuation procedures that had been refined over a long period of time, and also uh, a procedure that was probably less likely in the 70s, much more likely now, the level of detail that passengers get when it comes to emergency evacuation, not just when they fly in the airplane, but from news media reports, from industry educational efforts, so that if you have something happen right now, the average passenger who has no prior warning that something's going on, they experience a crash, experience an event like this, and sometimes without even getting the direction from the flight attendants, they'll know what to do. Yeah. Uh, open the emergency exits, evacuate the airplane, get the injured out of there as, as quickly as possible, separate themselves from the airplane, 
and await uh, rescue by emergency person, uh, service personnel. What about the aircraft itself? I mean, that was an incredibly hard landing um, at Halifax, um, uh, but the fuselage remained together, protecting the passengers. Aircraft of a number of years ago, would it have been the same kind of thing? It's possible, uh, but it's hard to say because, uh, be quite frank, uh, having been involved in the design of one aircraft model, the 777, there's always improvements made to the uh, survivability of the aircraft, making certain parts of the aircraft stronger, making it less likely to have certain failures like, uh, let's say, loose fan blades going through the fuselage. But every event is different. The dynamics of every crash is different. And sometimes it's uh, truly amazing, even for people who are inside the business, to see what happens in an actual, honest-to-goodness crash and how well the aircraft uh, survives it. Now, Halifax, of course, by any definition, was an extraordinary event, a lot of damage to the airplane, and it's, uh, it seems almost miraculous that no one was, was killed. Another one, which fit that same um, category, was the crash in San Francisco back in 2013 when you had a 777 landing short of the runway and the tail broke off. If you had told me that you could have something that big, essentially do almost a 360-degree pinwheel with the back end flying 50 feet off the ground and the nose almost on the ground, and the fuselage slamming down on the runway like that, and at the end of it all, having only three fatalities, I thought, no way. Uh, we, and we meaning when I was at Boeing, when we were designing this aircraft, the requirements for it, that scenario, that sort of crash dynamic never entered my mind. I'd never seen anything like that before, and it was not part of any regulatory requirement I'm aware of. Yet the aircraft was strong enough to keep everybody alive and let them get out. Yeah. Here's Bruce on the line from Etobicoke. Bruce, uh, what are your thoughts on this? Well, if you are driving on a 401 and you have an accident and you survive the crash, but the car doesn't, your insurance pays off as a crash. Yeah. And the whole airplane was written off as a crash. They can't do anything with the fuselage. They can't use parts. It's a crash. It is not a hard landing. Okay. All right. I see your point. Yeah, I, okay. I, I think common sense would dictate that, don't you, Bruce? Certainly. The other thing that I wanted to say really quickly yeah. is I did some historical number crunching. And you, did you know that there were less people leaving Ireland 100 years ago because of the potato famine than are, there are leaving farms because of the wind, wind turbines? Well, what has that got to do with what we're talking about? No, I just wanted no, to put that you out You were just putting it. All right, Bruce. Call back tomorrow when it's Free for All Friday, and we can, uh, we can talk about it then. Todd, uh, just before you go, I wanted to ask you one other question about the size of aircraft. I mean, um, the A380, they are getting bigger. Uh, do you foresee in the somewhat uh, foreseeable future they will get even larger than that, or have we reached, reached a kind of max capacity for aircraft? I don't believe so. I, the size of aircraft are going to be driven by two things primarily, uh, economics and, and technology. The technology certainly exists to make aircraft even bigger than they are now or to put more people on them. The only question is, is there going to be a rationale to do so, both from the passenger perspective and from the, I hate to say this, the insurance perspective? Uh, one can only imagine a worst-case scenario. Let's say two of these A380s having an event yeah. where there are no survivors 
and the insurance claims that would come out of that could wreck the insurance industry. Well, that would be a total capacity of roughly how many passengers with two of them? It could be well over uh, 800 people. 800 people. And again, this is something that isn't necessarily an aviation decision because aviation, as I said, is a global enterprise. It involves a lot of different kinds of industries. And the insurance industry will very definitely have a word or two to say about whether or not they would even insure something that would hold, let's just pull the number out of the hat, a thousand people. Let's go back for a moment to the crash in the Alps. Do you think, from what we know so far anyway, that there will be lessons to be learned here, or is this just um, a human um, a human willful act that brings down an aircraft? Will there be anything we can learn from this? Oh, absolutely, uh, if, if nothing else. What we may learn is that what we've already learned, I believe, is that the protections that are in place with respect to screening pilots may not be sufficient to keep dangerous pilots or allegedly dangerous pilots out of the cockpit. And although the medical requirements have been evolving over the years, it may be necessary to evolve them even further to answer the following question. Can you, with some level of reliability, identify pilots who may be a threat to the airplane and take steps from treatment to assigning them elsewhere to reduce the risk, while at the same time balancing the privacy rights that individual pilots may have. Todd Curtis, thanks very much for your time and your expertise. I appreciate it. Well, I appreciate the opportunity. Okay, bye for now. Todd Curtis, he's a pilot, aviation expert, and author. For more information about aviation safety and security, please visit airsafe.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.